So, two weeks, two whole weeks on men. And I need to say at the start that this week really is focused on men's relationship to women. And so actually I'm going to talk about women. Uh, and then the following week, it's uh, more about masculine traits or traditional masculine traits. Uh, aggression, um, strength, those sorts of things in the kingdom. So two parts. It will be fine. <laughs> now, amongst Christians who want to take the Bible seriously as the word of God, there are, I think, broadly three ways in which um, the roles of men have been viewed. I've called them hardcore patriarchy, softcore patriarchy, and mutuality. So hardcore patriarchy views the Bible as describing how things were, are, and always should be. God is male. Men, by dint of their maleness, are therefore leaders. Women are subordinates. Wives are under the authority of their husbands. And only men should attain to positions of leadership in society. Sarah Palin was famously described by someone in this camp as being biblically ineligible to run for vice president. Insert your own joke there. Softcore patriarchy is similar. Roles and responsibilities are defined by gender, but it's different in its view of the biblical context being actually culturally defined. So women can work outside the home, they can go to any position that they are qualified for, but they can't teach men in church, and a primary uh, role for women in a marriage is to be subordinate. The man's role is ultimately to lead and have responsibility in the home if he's married, and only men can assume overall leadership in the church. The third view is mutuality. Now, my conviction is that this is the only appropriate view when we look at the overarching narrative of the Bible as a whole. And I believe, actually, that both those patriarchal views that I've just described are actually stuck in the fall. By the way, when I talk about the fall, and when we talk about uh, the Genesis uh, description of creation, I just need to make this clear. I don't see that so much as history as more important than history, as actually a depiction of deep truths, timeless truths of one, what the world is supposed to be like, and two, what went wrong. It shows how human life was supposed to function and why it doesn't now. And in Genesis 1 to 3, the story goes that God created male and female, made for each other, and one with one another. God saw this and saw that it was very good, perfect, in fact. However, the fall distorted this perfect mutuality by, amongst other things, turning men against women and women against men. Oneness became rivalry for power. And so addressing Eve, the text puts it like this. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. A life of struggling for control between the sexes has then been life ever since for humankind. But... Sadly, I think the church has often perpetuated the fall as actually a permanent state of affairs, even sometimes a godly one. Maybe men aren't supposed to rule over, but they are supposed to have authority over. Now, I find this deeply troubling because of what the Bible says. 
because in Jesus, the fall is reversed. As Paul puts it, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The fall and all its effects have gone, and the new, the recreation, is here. So, oneness between the sexes is in Jesus recaptured, and the struggle for power between them is put to death in Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus, says Paul. The Bible is unequivocal about this. This is how things were supposed to be, and this is how things now, because of Jesus, are heading once more. So, given that, let us carry on in Ephesians, which we've been doing for a bit, as we consider the relationship between male and female. This is chapter 5, starting at verse 15. This feels quite kind of chubba chubba chum chip chip. Yeah, do you know why that is? It's a technical thing. Is it annoying? Slightly annoying me. Yeah, a bit annoying. Just stop, stop it. Okay. Verse 15. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, firstly, Paul is saying we need to engage our brains with regards our faith. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but wise. Do not be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. The fact that we're told to be very careful suggests that the implications of how our faith affects our lives are not always simple and not always necessarily easy to understand. Understanding the Lord's will takes time, care, and attention. And undoubtedly, this includes how we view the genders, men and women. So let's resist the temptation to think, oh, this stuff's not really for me. I'm going to check out of this talk because I don't care. No, we're called to actually think very deeply about these things because, as Paul says, they're important. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that he uses drunkenness specifically as a contrast between being filled with the Spirit is not because the Ephesians had a particular problem with alcohol. There's no evidence of that. It's also not because Paul has a problem with alcohol. There's no evidence with that. It's rather, it is a helpful and striking contrast between what life is like in the spirit. And we are talking, by the way, blind drunkenness here, not feeling a bit chill after an IPA. <laughs> I actually hate IPAs. It's one of my big problems of moving to this country. You love them. I do not understand why you would like an IPA. These are disgusting things created by disgusting people, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Sour and also fruity in a beer, just so you know, should be flat, not sparkly. It should be brown and it should be warm. That was what we gave you as a nation. What have you done with it? Does anyone agree with me that IPAs are of the devil? Three of you, two of you are British. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, we did actually. We, we created IPAs. I'm very sorry. 
Uh, good. What was I talking about? Not that. Uh, yes. The point is, drunkenness numbs the senses, restricts the freedom, and leads to a total loss of control. The spirit, on the other hand, heightens the senses, sets people free, and makes them more self-controlled. So being full of the spirit is actually where we become more of ourselves, not less. So, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, he's snuck in there again. It is an imperative, a direct command. Therefore, there is no choice. We're supposed to do it. Secondly, it's also plural, which means it's not for a special few. It's for everyone. Thirdly, it's passive. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Not we are going to get the Holy Spirit to fill us. We just receive the Holy Spirit as he fills us. And most importantly, it is present continuous. This is not a once and for all experience. It is over and over again. The idea is be filled and go on being filled over and over again by the Holy Spirit. This is the primary command. It is, in fact, the imperative that, f uh, that goes before every other single imperative in the New Testament. Paul's logic is this. In order to be, uh, let's say, to keep any of the Christian imperatives, let's say, do not envy, for instance, Paul's point is, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then an envy-free life will, if not become uh, kind of, um, what's the word, uh, inevitable, then it will become distinctly possible. To try and not envy by ourselves without the Spirit is to cripple ourselves. It's why, just to bring things full circle, we do bang on and on and on about the Holy Spirit. Because without him, and without his power coursing through us, our, it's like that we're bringing a knife, basically our potent but not potent enough willpower, to a gunfight which is the need for supernatural, extraordinary, life-changing, revolutionary power. Much better to bring the double-barreled bazooka of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then we might see some actual victories in our own life and in the lives of all the other people that we come across. Good, enough on that. It's the imperative before all other imperatives. And here, Paul lists four specific ones that follow on from it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then, one, speak to one another in psalms, two, make music and sing, three, give thanks, um, which are all for another talk, but they show of the power of the Holy Spirit to lift us up, one, in praise, which is what we've just done, but also in encouraging one another. And then, the focus of this talk, imperative number four, verse 21, submit. Submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present herself to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this sounds on first reading, and I'm sure lots of people have had it taught to them as not just endorsing, but also propagating a hardcore patriarchy, or at the very least, a softcore one. I want to try and show how this isn't really the case at all. The key to understanding this passage is to see that verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, needs to be read as a summary of everything that goes beyond. And the meaning of this is very clear. All Christians, every single one, male, female, wife, husband, young, old, rich, poor, white, black, pastors, congregations, every single darn one of us is supposed to submit to every single darn one of us. So whatever this passage is and isn't, it most certainly is not Paul singling out wives for special submission treatment. Indeed, the word for submit in the Greek isn't even in verse 22. It is just sort of inferred there. Rather, it is the sense is everyone submit to everyone, wives to husbands, blah, 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 husbands to wives, blah, 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 blah. Um, what's next after that? Uh, slaves to masters, blah, 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 masters to slaves, blah, 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 blah. Uh, children to parents, blah, 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 fathers to children, blah, 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 blah. It's the other way around. Mutual submission the hallmark of what it is to be in the Christian community. But submission does not mean being passive, weak, or dominated. It does not mean having low self-esteem or giving up free will. Rather, the word literally means to arrange under. So Paul is saying, arrange all of yourselves under one another. It's active, not passive. It is humbly and freely choosing to uh, consider others as surpassing yourself. In short, it is simply following the example of Christ who gave himself up for everyone. In the end, submission is nothing more than a decision about the relative worth of another person. So for Christians, following Jesus, everyone is worth it. Hence, mutual submission. So far, so right on. Verse 22 Wives, submit to your husbands. This is one of the most misapplied, misunderstood, uh, controversial verses in the New Testament. We had it at our wedding. We didn't want to have it at our wedding, but somehow it crept in there anyway. In fact, we'd done quite a lot to make sure that it wasn't at our wedding. We'd chosen two readings at our wedding that were uncontroversial, that were um, exciting and loving and good, and particularly because we had so many friends who weren't Christians, ones that even they could really get behind. We thought about this a lot, and we thought, well, if we have these two readings, then they won't have any other readings. And so we had these two readings, and then the minister got up and went, those were nice readings, weren't they? And we went, yes, we chose them. He said, I don't want to talk about those readings. I want to talk about a different reading. And then our hearts fell. And then he said, so I'm going to read it. And then he read this whole passage out just because he could. And then he spent the whole talk basically saying, Hannah, 
submit to Ed. Hannah, submit to Ed. Hannah, submit to Ed. 20 minutes of it. He didn't say anything to me. Now, you'll have to take my word for it. I know Hannah quite well. If there's one thing that she does probably to a fault is put other people first. So didn't really need to be said at all. Especially didn't need to be said with nothing said to me at all. I think he probably said to you, just carry on as you are, you're fine. You'll be all right, you're a man. I think it was something like that. Those were good days. My point is, this is a loaded verse. Probably everyone, including people who aren't Christians, would say they've heard something about this. But I wonder if we can try and strip that loadedness away for a second and see things again. The point is, when Paul says to wives, submit to your husbands, the wives of his culture would go, yeah, duh, we're doing it all the time. We have to. It's like him turning up for the first time in 21st century LA and saying to us, oh, oh hello, Paul, hi. Uh, got anything to say to us? And he goes, I'll tell you what, what I've thought is, you should have cars. Honestly, use Uber or, or cars to get around because you can't walk around this place. You can't, it'll be a night. Do not try and walk, get in a car or use Uber. And we go, yeah, we know, we've lived here. That's the sense. Wives submit to your husbands, we know. The evidence for what it was like to be a first century wife across the Roman world paints a pretty horrible picture. Not a universally horrible one. There were, of course, exceptions probably in more progressive places like Rome and Ephesus. But in general, in general, women were the victims of severe subjugation. By and large, women were, were regarded as inferior, stupid. They were commonly called the Latin word imbecilitatas, which means imbecile. That's how they were referred to. Uh, they had very little freedom. They were regarded as technically impure and could easily be discarded. In Rome, fidelity for men was non-existent. It wasn't a thing. You would uh, have sex with your wife purely for procreation, and then there would be slaves and wives and, and concubines and prostitutes for all your other desires and needs. Effectively, wives were chattel, a property of their owners with no voice and very little recourse for justice. One writer, for instance, describes women as the worst plague that Zeus ever created. So, Paul's instruction for wives to submit to their husbands is, given that context, pretty much the only non-controversial thing he says in the whole passage. They would have been doing this all the time. The question, therefore, is why does he feel the need to say this? And this is where things get controversial just probably not in the way that you may be expecting. The answer is found not in the instruction, but the motivation behind the instruction. Submit to your husbands, says Paul, not because they have power over you, but because they will be submitting to you. And more so, they will be laying down their lives for you. They will be building you up. You see, and this is why this passage isn't really about wives at all. It's about men. It's about husbands. Because apart from this one command, 
is almost exclusively directed to men. And as such, this is where we get into revolutionary world. So whilst Paul is following actually quite a well-known uh, formula, these household codes were both Jewish and uh, Greek, everyone would have had one, and they would follow the formula of wives, children, slaves. But, and here Paul is different because he talks about not just wives, but also husbands, not just slaves, but also masters, not just children, but also fathers. He's subverting the whole thing. Back to the motivation for wifely submission. The reason Paul gives, aside from the general instruction of mutual submission, is verse 23, because the husband is head of the wife. I'm convinced that this categorically does not mean has authority over. Firstly, if Paul had meant has authority over the wife, he could have said that in lots of much easier to understand words. He could have, for instance, used the word authority. He doesn't, though. He uses the word head, which is very difficult to translate, and the precise meaning is always a little bit unclear. And anyway, if authority was in view here, we'd have to say, why is he having to say it anyway? Because this was the perceived perception of life anyway and the lived-out reality in the culture. Secondly, the word head in Greek does not have an analogous meaning as it does in English. We use it frequently, head, to mean authority. Headmaster, head honcho, head coach, head uh, possum. I don't think we've ever used that. Head possum, imagine a head possum. Oh, I hate possums. A 30-foot head possum in his lair directing possums. Anyway, we use it for authority. It doesn't have that sense in Greek at all. Really, in Greek, head means head. Just a head of a body. A big bulbous head. That's what it means. But thirdly, and most importantly, the key to understanding what Paul means by this hard-to-define word, and we've got to admit we're not completely sure, is the second half of the sentence. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Paul has been banging on and on and on about Jesus' headship of the church throughout the letter. And the sense throughout is that Jesus is the head in that he holds the whole church together and brings it to life. He is the integral cornerstone, the foundation of the church. Most significantly, he is all these things, as Paul is very careful to point out here, because he is the saviour. Jesus did not win the world and establish his church by using his omnipotent authority to subjugate people to his will. He won the world and established his church by becoming like us, a servant of many, and giving his life up as a ransom for all. He came not to, to be served, but to serve. And this... This is exactly what is in view for Paul here when he talks about heads. Now, of course, husbands do not save their wives in a spiritual sense. But Paul's call is for husbands to lay down their wives 
in exactly the way that Jesus has laid down his life, not in exactly the same way, but in the similar way Jesus has laid down his life for the world. And so, in a world where radical inequality between men and women existed, and the accepted norm was to treat women as a kind of piece of property or dirt, this is hardcore revolutionary talk from Paul. So, as I said, it's not really about men, uh, women, it's about men. And Paul carries on to flesh out what it means for husbands to be the Jesus-like servant-hearted foundations of faith for their wives. In addition to mutual submission, husbands are to love their wives, verse 25, and husbands are, verse 29, to feed and care for their wives just as they would their own bodies. To feed here really means to raise up, and the word for care is more tender. It's like giving warmth to, protecting, looking after. So it's a beautiful picture, actually, of husbands promoting their wives, pushing them forward, driving them forward, in fact, and of looking after them, giving them comfort and shelter, and making sure they are safe. None of this description of the husband has the concept of authority in view at all. So, in summary, for wives, there isn't really any new instruction, but there is a very new motivation. For husbands, the instructions are direct, countercultural, utterly revolutionary, and comprehensive. This is not because men are stupid. This is not because men need to be told. This is not because Paul's got a particular fixation on men and is down on them. Rather, this is Paul pushing out all the implications of what Jesus has done in bringing oneness to the sexes, of restoring that Eden-like utopia of mutuality. And he's pushing it to the logical conclusions in the realm of what were deeply distorted versions of marriage. You see, for all of us, culture does not get to define how we are viewed and how we view ourselves. Only Jesus does. Now, we're never going to fully evade the effects of the fall this side of eternity. But we aim to realize Jesus' vision for the sexes. And we are not limited by what any society, what any culture takes to be normal. God's big idea is that Christian community, recreated by Jesus, enlivened by his spirit, look so distinct, so free, so empowered, that the rest of the culture, even if they don't believe what we believe, looks in on that Christian culture and goes, oh, wait a second, that's how the sexes should treat each other. That's how male and female should coexist. That's how people, in general, should treat people. That's God's big idea. The problem is, as far as I see it, though, the church has often looked less Christ-like in its identity, in its desire to put one another first, than culture. So culture has gone, well, the church can't tell us anything, because look at them. 
Let's try and work it out ourselves. In the dark, fumbling around, and you have what, ha what I think is going on now in culture, which is just a lot of fumbling around. Not really helping anyone. So how do we apply this? Well, I know that for many of you, you're not married. And it's important to say that Paul really does have the marriage relationship right in focus here because he sees it as a microcosm of Jesus' relationship with the church. However, I hope you can see that the implications of submitting to one another, they are transferable to every single relationship we might ever come across. Between male and male, female and female, male and female, in work relationships, family relationships, uh, friendship relationships, every single relationship, these implications are there. Mutual submission is the default. But, and I think this is important, notice the particular onus, the particular priority placed on the party who holds the power. In Paul's culture, it's the husbands. You have the power, he says, so really you need to work pretty hard to rewrite this. Now, I'm convinced that in general, in general in our culture, men continue to have the power in pretty much every sphere of life. That may change, and certainly in this country at least, it's a lot less um, like Ephesus as it may be in other places around the world, but there's still a long way to go. And we need to head for oneness as the goal as opposed to anything else. So if you don't mind, can I talk to the men just for a second as a man? Don't be threatened. Don't be threatened. It's all right. God cares about you as much as every single other person in the world. He wants you to be everything that you can be, but you don't need to be threatened. I know strong women are a bit threatening, but don't be threatened. Take on Christ's example and look as far as you can to promote every person that you come across, be they male or female. Do not be threatened. Women, if you don't mind, don't be threatened. I know we are. I know you have been. There is a beauty about mutual submission that the fight for equality doesn't really manage to encompass. Because with mutual submission, all injustice cannot exist. There is no fight for justice because it disappears when everyone is doing what they can to promote the other person. And reaching and fighting for power is actually just shifting the same problem to a different place. It's carrying on the problem of the fall. Which is not to say that God does not care about justice. He cares very much about justice. And all of us should be the ones looking to see justice be given to everyone. Because that's what Jesus has put in us and that's what he cares about. 
but wouldn't it be great if every single person who walked in the doors of this church went, wow, you put each other first, all of you, all the time. I want to live in a community like that. Does this preclude authoritative leadership? Absolutely not for either sex. The very fact that Paul is teaching and lecturing these poor Ephesians who I there's a I'm going down a little yeah so Eddie Izzard does a little thing about um, Paul writing these letters to uh, different um, cities and they go he's written to the whole city again the whole of Corinth to all the Corinthians do we want his letter no anyway he he writes these letters because he sees himself as having authority and having a particular role. And there are countless other examples within the New Testament of people having authority, having roles, as there are in church history. So, no, it does not preclude authoritative leadership. If that is how and what you have been called to do, that is what you need to do. The problem, though, for Christians is that mutual submission and authority, they're pretty much synonymous. They are the same thing. So, we exercise our authority by serving people. That's what it means. Secondly, does it mean we're all the same? Absolutely not. As Alice explained last week, part of Christian maturity is identifying and using our unique particular gifts for the service of the whole. I think Paul's view of the Christian community is sort of a bottom-up meritocracy. Everyone has a role to play, commensurate with their abilities and their gifts and their experience, and each does so, though, to serve one another rather than to serve themselves. Because, in my opinion, and I will end with this. The critical issue in Christianity, in Jesus, is not actually masculinity, masculinity or femininity, because all are one in him. I think, really, God goes, gender, pfft, really? Pfft, yeah, whatever. Great, you're a man. Great, you're a woman. Yeah, whatever. Because what he is really interested in is personhood. God does not say to you, I primarily made you as a man or I primarily made you as a woman. He says, I primarily made you as you. And that's what is important. Become you. Be who you are. Some men are made to build forts and cut down trees. Some men like flowers and dresses. Some women, <laughs> someone put their hand up. Uh, some women are never going to lead things, are quiet and retiring. Other women are ballsy, badass leaders. That's fine. Don't be threatened. Each one of us, man or woman, has a responsibility to become the people we were created to be. So the first question as a Christian person is this, what are my gifts and how can I serve? The second question is, how can I identify other people's gifts and help them to serve? I do not think it should matter one tiny little bit whether the person we see serving or the person we are serving is male or female. All we need to know is that the person we see serving is truly gifted to the particular job they are doing. So what we must do, what I myself must do, is to discover my unique gifting and to help other people 
discover theirs, and use theirs. Remember, God really likes his kingdom. And he is looking for people, whichever people, who want to help build it with him. That's what he's going around doing. What he is doing right now in this room is speaking to you, saying, would you like to come on board my little, uh, fun little train of kingdom building? It's going to be a great kingdom. I want to use you, and I want to use you because I created you as a person, and I have given you gifts. So it is good for us to respond and go, yes, I'd like to be part of that. It's what it means to be a human being. Yes, I would like my gifts to be used. Yes, I would like to be on board that train and show me how I can work to it. Show me what I can do. That's what he's asking all the time. 